0: Um, I was sitting there thinking while we were praising and worshiping about a time, it was probably about 1995, and we went to a conference, and I remember the graphic on the t-shirt that we went, and I had forgotten totally about this, um, but the graphic on the t-shirt was this man running and... Uh, the idea, he had bandages on him, and the idea was the bandages were coming off as he was running. And it said, um, "Let them loo- uh, loose them and let them free, with the idea of Lazarus when Jesus uh, resurrected Lazarus, and he was loosed and, and free. And I remembered that graphic, and I thought about um, just the last year that I've been going through, and it, it's crazy. This last year has been a total awakening for me. It's almost like... Back in 95, I didn't get it. I didn't understand the whole loose it and let him free because back from like 1995 to probably about, I don't know, how long, I was uh, bound by religious beliefs, legalism, how I should submit myself as a wife. Um, I was doing this wrong. You know, and of course your mind tends to think of the negative. So everything I was doing was wrong. I didn't feel like I was socially... Fitting into where I needed to be and I'm going to do a plug for children's church because this is how it started It started in children's church. So if you volunteer for children's church, maybe you can get some of the some of the insights but um, While I was working in children's church because for me that was a safe place to work Kids are safe to me <clears throat> because they're so Honest they're so fresh. They're so new and so you they don't have agendas in a lot of cases and if their agenda they have agendas, it's simple agendas, like I'm going to act out so I can get my way, and and you can see through that that with the kids. But as I was working with the kids, I realized that I had a love for people. I have a love for um, human beings, and it started with my love for children. As you watch children and as you teach children, you look at each individual and you see the whisper of God on their hearts. You see God inside them, just a the little light that's inside of them of potential and future. And as that idea started to um, come up in me, I started transferring that idea to adults and seeing that every single person is has got a light of God inside of them. And one thing that we can rely on and that we can count on, and I think that God has made it very, very clear, is we can always count on the love of God. Always, always, always. If we do whatever we do that we think is unforgivable or totally wrong is not <laughs> important to God because we, can, we are created to receive love. And uh, that's one thing that we can count on regardless and so as we build on that idea throughout the next half an hour, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you why I shared that, but over this last year, I've taken that concept with the idea of keeping my eyes open for abundance and looking for, purposely looking for abundance, not just financially, but looking for abundance in people, in their hearts, in what they have to give and what they have to offer to each other, because... That's really what's going to. That's really what's changing my life and what's awakening inside of me. So, in order to explain this, let's say that life is like kayaking. I like to kayak, and I like going in the morning in the reservoir. I don't get a. I don't get a chance to go too often because, quite frankly, it's really hard to throw the kayaks up on top of the car and rope them down. <laughs> I can't get past that that thing. If I could just get a vehicle where I can throw them in the back, that'd be great. But. Anyway, I like to kayak, and we can think about life as a kayak going upstream. So consider going upstream. When you see the water flowing downhill, you know that things are coming down on, on the water from, like, miles ahead, right? And you can't predict what's coming downstream if you're going upstream. So if you're kayaking and a log hits you and capsizes you, You may not even see the log. All of a sudden, you know, all you think about is you're capsized. And then when you take a breath of air and you see it's a log, you look at it as a log, right? So you're like, dang, a log hit me. You get back on your kayak and you learn that while I'm kayaking upstream, it's a possibility I might run into logs. I don't take anything personally. I see it only as life happens, right? Right. But if you're also kayaking upstream and you get hit and you capsize and then you come up from air and you see it's a human being on another kayak, it's a whole different story. Because you look at that human being and you assume agenda when they hit you. Are you trying to make fun of me? Are you, tr- are you just mean person? Well, what, what is it? But you have no clue what that kayaker experienced coming downstream before they hit you. You can only guess. You can only assume, right? So you you look at them, and our tendency as human beings is to look at that person and assume the worst. So we look at them like, what are you trying to do? How rude. That was awful. And you, you begin to form an opinion of that person and their actions without knowing what happened further upstream that caused them to do that. Maybe they just don't know how to kayak, and they hit you because they're out of control. So you have no clue what, what's going on, and that's like life. We bump into people. We make mistakes. We say things to people that we don't think about, and that has a reaction from what we did. So a lot of times in life, as we go through life, we're reacting to people out of our own sense or our own internal map, and, and then it gets really messy because then we get upset and uh, disheartened, um, discouraged. We get caught up in fear. We get caught up in all this stuff just because of one comment that someone made, and we're assuming we know why they said that. Uh, well, I can think of one time I was new in education, and I liked this one girl. You know how you always go to work and you admire someone? You're like, I would like to be like that person. We always sometimes find people that we would like to model after. Well, there was this person, she was light and bubbly, and I've never really been kind of a light and bubbly person, especially not... Fifteen years ago, I wasn't. And I thought, wow, that's that's, a nice, that's kind of a person I would like to be friends with. So I got the opportunity to take a class with her in Colorado Springs, and we had to carpool together. She wasn't driving, by the way, but we were in the back seat, and we were talking. And I don't know what got into me. I don't know why I did this, but I hit her on the back of the head. I just, I don't know if I thought that was a joke or what I was doing. And you know when you do that, and it's, like, really awkward, and, you, and there's, like, dead space for a while? And you're thinking, what did I do that did not go out planned like I wanted it to do? I I don't know why I did that. That was so embarrassing. And how many of you that have experienced this, you plague yourself with this for months and years afterwards? You're such an idiot. What the heck were you thinking? Are you kidding me? And then you're so embarrassed that you don't even want to have a relationship with that person anymore. So you avoid them. You don't want to talk about it. It was just too weird. And relationship breaks off. Because you don't want to give yourself a break. Because that was just stupid. I'm kind of wondering what she thought. Because she kind of looked at me like, what the? Did she just do? Right? And you're just like, oh, I don't know what I just did. It was just, then we don't talk forever. And then just last year, I had to work with her, and we get along really well now. But I never bring it up. I'm not going to say, hey, do you remember that time I bopped you on the back of the head? I think you all can relate, right? So we have to ask ourselves, what's going on here? Why does communicating with people and working with people, why is it so messy and unpredictable? Um, So I started looking at this, and when you think about it, uh, we all come from different experiences, different teachers. We have mentors, we have teachers, we have parents, we have coaches, we have things we hear and, and everything throughout our life we carry with us and that's what makes us us. So I have a whole internal landscape. The other thing we want to consider is we're created by God in his image, which is really, really powerful and complex And I don't think we realize how powerful our imprint and our image of God is here on earth. And when we think about that, God gives us several things that are of him, and that's creative powers. When God created the world, he spoke to the world, and he created the world. So we know if we're created in the image of God, what comes out of our mouth, our words have creative power. And we know this because we've seen this happen in history. We've seen someone who may have an idea, and they convey an idea through language, and that has a creative power to put something into place. For example, we can look at the negative. We can look at Hitler, who had a fear of people and had, um, who knows? I don't. I, I, we can't look at Hitler's internal landscape that caused him to be him, but through his words, he caused a whole movement that almost destroyed a whole people group. So our words have creative power. On the flip side, we have people who have had powerful speeches like Martin Luther King, Jr., who spoke about change in the world, and we're still working on that change and still working on his words because of the creative power in which it entails. The other thing that I think God gave us to to protect us was fear. And I used to think, even two, three years ago, I used to think that fear was a spirit that you bumped into And um, if you were fearful, you had to rebuke fear because that's a spirit that comes into your life. As I start studying, I think more than anything, I think we create fear. It's humans that bring fear, not uh, an evil spirit in some ways. Because if we look that we are God's image and we are created after God, that is a powerful, powerful thing. And fear is very powerful. So fear, if it's one of the more powerful emotions, how could it come from a spirit that's lesser than me? It has to come from me and my own creation of fear. And I think as a people group and as an individual, we cause these strong feelings of fear that bind us up and keep us from really finding um, our true potential or, trying, or connecting to others. Um, So I started thinking about what makes us us, what makes our internal landscape, what motivates us to bop someone on the head or what motivates us to (laughs) say things. I don't know about you, but I'll say things. I was just going into I started working at school because we went back to school and I'm a school counselor, but we're missing our eighth grade teacher. And that's what I taught for 15 years. So they asked me, hey, can you take over the eighth grade class? until we find a teacher. And I love to do that. I love to teach. I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll go in. I'll teach for a couple months until um, you get someone. And uh, I was talking to the custodial people when I walked in, and they said, we heard that you're taking eighth grade. And I said, yeah. They said, well, the third and fourth grade teachers said that you like to teach because you like to be center of attention. I was like, what? I could have sat there and taken that totally personally. I could have sat there and said, Wow, I, I know sometimes I think I'm narcissistic, but maybe I'm really narcissistic because the third and fourth grade teachers know about that. So I paused, and then I thought about it. I thought, I think I've said that to a third and fourth grade teacher. I'm sure I said that. So I'm sure they're repeating something that I said, but I could have easily taken that as a um, as a personal comment. Um, so I started thinking about this. We all have different landscapes, and the custodian that said that to me, probably thought about it afterwards because I, I the head custodian was looking at him like, did you just really say that to her? You know? I don't know if he ever reflects on what he said. He was in there diligently trying to make my life easier later on. So maybe he felt bad. I don't know. So anyway, so I, I'm a visual person and I like to find a visual of what's going on inside her head. So I started digging through the internet and I found this on IQ Matrix. And this is what influences our perceptions. And it's a huge mind map that someone came up with through creative process where they think about all the things that create us. And when I say that we're created in God's image, we are created as powerful human beings and very, very complex. And I love mind maps because I hated bully teachers when I was younger and we used to do... Research papers, I remember it was so agonizing when I was in high school and middle school and we'd have to do a research paper, and they wanted you to do a outline. And you have the Roman numeral, the A, the 1, the 2. It was too many rules. Too many rules. And so I started teaching also with mind maps because there are kids that get this. Right? They look at this. And they're like, but I wanted to show it to you just to give you a, a visual reflection of what really is going on to up inside of a person, what all they've experienced throughout life, throughout the people that have influenced, all of the information. It's almost like our own life as a research paper. We've been, I've been researching for a number of years about how to deal with life. And I've been storing all that information, all the things that people say, all the things that I experience, everything I've done, what I've tried, what I haven't tried, what my fears are, what my love is, where everything is, is all stored up here in my brain, and it's firing all the time, and it's very complex. So if I sit there and I try to assume, that if someone says something bad about me and I try to assume what their agenda is or what's going on inside of them, it would almost be trying to navigate through this and assuming it's the same map as mine. And so I would be actually narcissistic then by thinking that I know what's going on inside and I'm going to agree with them on the fact that I'm narcissistic or whatever. So we all have this inside of ourselves. We all have our internal landscape. We all have our journey on what we see and how we view life. We all experience and perceive things in different ways. But we all can get along. We all need to connect. So how does this happen when you have so much going on? Um, one of the things that I've been getting more and more of over the last just couple months and three months is the fact that uh, we perceive life sometimes in a negative way. And that is typical. There's a lot of sociologists, and now the fact that we can get pictures of our brain, we have neuroscientists and sociologists and psychologists that are looking about how we think. And I, I follow some of them. There's one person out there that... Um, is a neurologist and a psychologist. And I had his name, but I don't remember. Dr. Hansen was his last name. I don't remember his first name. But what he does is he looks at the neuroscience of our brain and how we respond to things in our external world. And unfortunately, because I don't know, they say evolution, if you guys want to buy into that, I don't know, possibly. But the fact remains We have a brain that focuses more on negative things than we focus on positive. For example, I had a party for my daughter, or you guys have all been there where you've had a party. And you're excited about the people that showed up, but you're dwelling on the one person that missed your party. And that one person that missed your party becomes more important than all the other people that came to celebrate with you. Don't kick yourself, because that's the way our brain works. Works. We have programmed our brain to look for fear, to look for fearful situations so we can survive. We have programmed our brain to look for negative because we don't want to be hurt. So we try to put protective um, stuff in our lives to keep us from being hurt, to keep us to preserve ourselves, to preserve our psyche. So we've trained our brain to look more on negative aspects of things than positive. This neuropsychologist said, the way that we have to change our brain is to start um, focusing on positive things, and we have, to, we have to work at it. It's not an easy thing because we've got to rewire our brain to start thinking about positive things. One of his suggestions was if you're in a moment where you're feeling very confident, where you're feeling very positive, you're feeling very loved, is to stop. Feel those feelings and make it a part of your experience. So if you stop and you say, wow, this feels really great right now. I feel really loved. I feel really accepted. What does that feel like? And if you take time to just stop and experience that, you're actually wiring your brain to look for more positive things than negative things. Um, Another sociologist did a study, and her name was Allison Ledgerwood, She's a sociologist, and she did a study where they took two groups of people. Don't you like these people that they play with? You know, yeah, I want to be the one that you're going to play with negatively, right? So they take these groups of people, and they said, okay, and and these are people that have actual the same disease, and they said the statistics say that 70% of all people who had this disease survived, They found that after that experience where they put a positive statistic, most of the people that heard that word believed that they were going to survive the illness. However, if they took the same people and said 70% of the people that had this disease will survive and then said, but 30% will die, they found that the people in those groups totally negated the 70% and focused on the 30% and believed that they were going to be part of that 30%. So our brain has a tendency to tilt to the negative. So when we listen to people and when we interact with people, and if they say something negative about us, we will latch on to that and agree with it. Just like those people did that heard the 30%, they're going to latch onto it and agree with it. The other study she did, which I thought was interesting, is she took groups of people, and she had one group, and she said, all right, we're going to play out a scenario. There's 600 people and 500 people are going to, uh, no, there's 600 people and 100 people are going to survive. How many people are going to not survive? Now, we know that's a typical subtraction. Right? 600 minus by minus 100 is 500. It took that group of people five seconds to do the math and say, oh, my gosh, then 500 people did not survive. Then she took another group of people and she said to them, we have a group of 600 people, and 500 of them um, perished. How many people survived? It took them eight seconds to do the math, to think about the positive. They had to reroute their brain to think of that 100 people survived because that's thinking on the positive and not on the negative. So our brain tilts them to the negative. So when we hear a bad thing said about us, we assume that we understand their internal map, and we assume that they're correct, and we start agreeing with them. Um, an example of this: I taught school for uh, I've taught language arts, and I always get someone I always get a couple kids every year that have messy handwriting. I mean, it's a disaster. And you look at it and you're like, "Oh my goodness." And so I started to have a conversation with these kids that had messy handwriting. And I would ask them, what happened in your life around second and third grade or even first grade? And after having a conversation, I would find that one, they had a teacher that they didn't like. And that teacher had a huge issue with spelling and would call them down if they misspelled a word. So they would they would either make it sound like they were stupid or that they were ridiculous for misspelling a certain word. So this student as a second grader or as a first grader, would agree with that teacher and think, I'm stupid, I can't spell. So by agreeing with that word, they have created fear in their life or they have created a situation where they're going to write messy. And the reason that they would write messy is because future teachers would have to give them the benefit of the doubt on whether that's an I or an E. And so they would specifically write messy because they didn't want to be exposed as being bad spellers. So I would tell my students, hmm, that's interesting. Guess what? In my class, I don't care about spelling. I care about what you have to say because you're valuable and you have something to say in my class. So misspell, I don't care. What I found out was that that their handwriting improved substantially. And so we take on what people say. We agree with them and we adapt that into our lives and we, we get rid of our freedoms that we normally have. I'm going to show you an uh, expert about an excerpt from um, YouTube about this guy. His name is Daniel um, Kish. Daniel Kish, yeah. Um, And he had cancer in his eyeballs when he was two years old, so they had to remove his eyeballs, and he was blind. What this kid has learned to what he learned as a child, and now he's 46. What he learned as a child was how to navigate his world. By using clicks. So he would navigate it like a bat does and create sonar in his head. So as he clicks, he could see and, and you can see videos of him where he's weaving in and out of traffic and he's absolutely blind. He has no eyeballs. And he's weaving in and out of, out of traffic using clicks because he can hear the sound and when the sound sounds different, he knows, he knows where the objects are in space. And he's training everybody in throughout the world, little kids, how to navigate their world. So as you see that, keep that in mind, because he's going to say something that I think is really interesting. Uh, I like what he says about there, about his parents. He says that ignorance and fear was not a part of what they were going to agree with. And if you would, when you look at our society, blindness is a agreed upon norm that we have for our society. So we Agree that if you're blind, then you're limited. And so we treat the people that are blind to be limited. Even in our school systems, we agree in different um, things that kids have and agree that they need extra help. And it's sometimes out of ignorance and fear because we don't understand. And how amazing it is that he had parents that did not take it personally when their child got blind and went forward and said, we are going to love our child, and with that love comes freedom. Um, another agreed-upon principle that I was thinking about in our community is we, we have a, a community belief that certain schools in our community and certain populations are never going to succeed and that our schools are not going to succeed can I suggest that's ignorance and fear that's driving that and not love? So when you look at our, the, the difference between love and ignorance and fear, love is always going to counteract the fear that we have and connect the people that we have in our community. Um, one example that I have in my life, and what I want to do is I want to show you. Oops, I'm right there is when we someone says something about us and we agree with that person, we are actually encasing ourselves into limited freedom. So if someone says something to me like, I don't think that you can. I know when I was um, back in 2002, I decided I was in the wrong career. I was in business and I didn't want to be in business. I wanted to teach. That's where my heart was at. But. Opinions of others are you don't have a degree in teaching, so you're not going to be able to get into a teaching job. If I would have agreed to that comment and taken that into my heart, I would have been restricted in my life's purpose. I wouldn't have found the freedom that I wanted to find. But thank God I had a friend that says, you know, Jackie, there are occasions when they will accept emergency licensure people. And you need to start looking for that and prepare yourself for that. So I broke free of that agreement that I made with society that I couldn't teach, and I started looking for possibility. Once I started doing that, sure enough, there was a position that opened up that was accepting uh, emergency licensures, and I was able to teach. And I'll tell you what, I did not look back. I interviewed for the job on Thursday. I got offered the job on Friday afternoon. I went into my work on Sunday, wrote a letter of recommendation, cleaned out my office, and people that came to my work on Monday saw no me. I was gone, <laughs> and I haven't looked back, and it was a risk I had to take because I only had a year to get uh, licensed and to get accepted back as a teacher. I was a single mom, but it was a risk I was worth taking, and it had nothing to do with fear at that point. It had everything to do with the fact that I loved myself enough and I loved the people that I wanted to serve enough that I was going to surpass my fear of not having a job within a year. And because I took that risk, it had enormous return, right? Uh, The other way that this happens in in relationships, I was thinking, well, I was thinking of uh, different things from the Bible as well. There's one story I want to bring out in the Bible and I studied... Dave, the difference between David and Saul, and I think it's pretty powerful. And I've brought up different scenarios um, because of that study, and I keep finding different scenarios. But when you think about when the Philistines were facing off to the Israelites, and you had Goliath standing right there, you had everybody in the camp agreeing with Saul that Goliath was someone they could not overcome. He was someone they couldn't conquer. They were living out of fear they were living out of um, their own landscape and assuming that Goliath had the same landscape. So is it possible that Goliath was just a bunch of um, uh, bravado, hiding fear, hiding incompetency or whatever was on his internal map? And here he's scaring a whole country to the point where they're ready to lose the country to fill the Philistines Um, With their fear and their agreement that they can't beat this guy. You've got David. Now, I think if David was initially in the camp, I don't think he would have, I think he would have agreed with everybody in the camp that this guy was too scary. But since he was away from that and he came into the camp to give his brothers dinner, he was not affected by the opinions of the camp. And so when he came in, everybody's telling him, this guy's scary, we're not gonna win, we're all hiding behind our bunkers. And they're letting this guy just scream at him. And David had a choice. He could agree with the people that were saying that this guy could not be conquered. Or he could disagree and choose love instead of fear. He could have feared this guy and been immobilized. And who knows what would have happened. But instead, he chose love for his God and love for his people to replace that fear. And he conquered Goliath. How many times in our life do we end up running into those situations where we have someone that says something to us, just like I hit someone on the back of the head. I have no clue why I did. I don't know why I say some of the things I say. I I don't know. And you're going to assume that I have all of this agenda, all of this misgivings, and you're going to take it personally, and you're going to agree with me, and come to find out, you're going to end up changing your life over something that I said that I have no reason I don't know why I said it. And yet we do it every day. We take things personally, and it keeps us from relationship. One example I have is uh, back in 2003, John and I decided to get married. And I was listening to Focus on the Family, and Focus on the Family's, it's it's a good radio show. And they had this bubbly girl coming on saying how blended families are so easy and how blessed you are to have a blended family. And I can tell people that have blended families because they're shaking their head like, oh, my God, no. <laughs> So I went into this with ignorance, totally. We decided to get married. Um, Joel was uh, three. Gabby was five. uh, Michaela, no. Michaela was, um, now you got me all messed up, Joel. They were little. And so we decided we were going to blend the family. John has two girls. I had a boy and a girl. They were all under the age of seven. And we decided to get married, and I'm going to have this glorious life where I have two brand-new beautiful children that I was going to love. Everything was going to be easy because Focus on the Family says it's going to be easy. What you don't understand when you get it, well, what I didn't understand when I went into this splendid relationship is not only do we have John and I raising these kids, but we also have the mother on the other side of John's Section, And we had a mother and a father and a stepmother on my side of this relationship. So we actually have five adults feeding into these kids all their ideas and agreements and whatever um, opinions they have about life. To add on to that, divorce is a very violent act when you divorce because you um, verbalize so much when there's a divorce. You have to justify why you want a divorce. So you're going to say all the nasty things you can ever say about that person out loud create all of this junk and you're going to justify how many of you guys have built a case about yourself in your head so you hear someone say something bad about you and so i always do this when i was putting on makeup and i realized how awful this is because here i am trying to make myself pretty but i inside my head i'm building a case against someone because they said something about me like, how could they say that about me? You know, I, if I ever saw them on the street, this is what I would say to them. Have you ever done that in your head where you build this case? Well, as you're building this case, you're also legitimizing their voice. Because if you hear them say something, and if you have to build a case and spend days while you put on your makeup rehearsing what you're going to say about them, you are saying what they said is powerful, and you're le- legitimizing what they said about you in your life. Right? Right? So anyway, so um, we went on, we got married. The girls would come over for the weekend and visit. We would think that that weekend went really well. We're like, that weekend went great. We would take the girls home, an hour later we'd get a phone call from their mother. And she would rant about how horrible they had, uh, time they had, how evil I was, how terrible their experience was, and they just hate Jackie. They just hate her. And so, of course, you know, I'm not one to let that go. I want to listen to every single negative thing said about me because how dare they say that, right? (laughs) So then you go and you build a case and you, you plague yourself. You actually put yourself in a state of hell when you listen to this because... You're like going over and over again. I am not this type of person. How dare they say this? I never liked her when I knew her in high school. And you just say this on and on and on, and it plagues your life because you criticize and you case-make and you agree. What you're doing is you're actually agreeing to what they say. And so she had convinced me that I was a hateful person, that I was negative influence on these girls, and that I being in their life has, has made them their life be worse. And she had convinced me of that. So in response, when the kids came over, I would regard both of the girls with suspicion. And my relationship with them changed. It changed from a place of love to a place of fear and suspicion. And so it got to the point where they would come and I would just retreat into my room without relationship. And we all know that that's that's never going to be Positive, But at that point, my agreement with their mother's words caused this place where it was fear, uh, disconnection, and it was just an awful place. I've only realized that that happened in the last two years. And so I've been working on building back my relationship with both of the girls. But I have to consciously do that now. So if I go out to dinner with one of the girls... Specifically, I have to consciously say, I am not going to agree with my past demons that I had brought up, all that fear that I had created in my life. I'm going to purposely find something positive about the interaction, and I'm purposely going to look at her with a face of love and not fear and suspicion. And I am not going to take it personally if she goes back to her mother and and reports that I am still up to my old nasty self. Because I know that probably those words that were brought about by their mother was brought through a landscape of fear that I'm going to be replaced as a mother. I don't want to be replaced as a mother. It could have been out of her landscape of rejection. It could have been out of her own landscape of not feeling good enough or not feeling like she was valuable. So maybe the girls went home, said they had a good time. She saw that as a threat and turned it around. And here I am assuming... That it's reality and I'm agreeing with it and I'm causing it to be true because I'm then reacting to that situation out of fear and suspicion instead of out of love, which I normally started off with. And how many times have we done that? And we have put ourselves inside we've encased ourselves into this almost box to where we have no freedom and we have no love. So we need to watch out for people that do that, and we also need to watch out for ourselves. So I'm the only one that understands my landscape. I don't know if I completely understand it, but I'm the one that experiences it, right? I'm the one that has to, and we love to classify. We love to shout people down sometimes, and I love it. I can be very critical. I can be very, um, I can stir the pot if I want to. Another experience I had is I found out that I hate to be left out of things. Hate to be left out of things. And I'm thinking, what is this all about? I was born a twin. So when you look at, um, I'm trying to think of the counseling word for it, when you're nine months old, when you attach to your parents, right? So when you're nine months old and you try to give them over to daycare, they scream and cry. Separation anxiety, that's what I'm thinking of. So most kids experience separation anxiety around nine months, When the caregiver tries to give them off to some stranger and they cry, it's because they don't want to be separated from that connectedness with their parents. Well, I had a connectedness with my sister that was very strong that went with me everywhere I went. So my separation anxiety was not acute like it is normally with a nine-month-old child. So I don't know if I really experienced the fears of separation anxiety. So the first day of school, Jamie and I went to school when we were six years old. It was our first day of school. Mom was not with us because she was in the hospital having my brother. (laughs) She was in the delivery room. So she couldn't take us to our first day of school. So our neighbor, who also had a daughter that was our age, took us to school, I think. I think that's who took us to school. So I remember sitting there on the bleachers on my first day of school for kindergarten. And I remember that I was, I remember this vividly. I remember I'm on this side, Jamie's here, and then Cindy's here, our friend. And we had these, and if you're from the 80s, you get the same as if you're from the 80s, you understand what's on a Big Mac, two all-beef patties, lettuce, Jesus Yeah, see, everybody knows. That's how powerful the word is, by the way, right? Um, anyway, if you went to school at my age, you had this foldable foam mat, and one, on one side is blue, and the other side was red. And it was, well, I was five, so it seemed like it was, you know, this big. It was probably smaller now. But I had my mat in front of me, scared to death, starting my first day of school, and my red side was showing. And I looked over, and I panicked. I remember panicking because Jamie and Cindy's mat was showing blue. So they had the blue side, and I'm thinking I'm doing something already wrong because I have the red side, and they have the blue side. So I'm sitting there, and they're calling out classes, and sure enough, Jamie and Cindy get to be in the same class, and I'm in a different class. This is the first time I ever had to experience separation anxiety. Wow. So I get put in this class, and I am freaked out. So my first day was, was, was really a day of fear. And in my mind, because, you know, we're, we don't think through things when we're six. We think very, um, this is a table, you know, <laughs> permanent object. Yeah, permanent. So I, I think, oh, I screwed up. The reason that I'm in a separate class is because I had my mat at the red and my sister and Cindy had their mat at the blue, and it's my fault that I'm away from my sister and my friend And that, that was only brought to my attention like a couple of years ago, when I, could, I couldn't figure out why I get so nervous when I'm left out of a group. I'm the one that when you see bosses in the room, like the principals talking in the room, I will go get my mail by their door and try to eavesdrop, because they have got to be talking about me. And then it dawned on me, why is it that I hate to be left out of things? So, I, so I'd volunteer for everything, so I wouldn't be left out of a group. And I found out I'm, I'm running myself ragged, trying to be a part of everything, and I thought, what is going on here? And through, um, you know, thinking about it on my internal map was this experience with my mat. And I have been reacting out of fear of people because of this event that happened when I was six years old. How many of us do that? I mean that's a simple thing. And we and then once I figured out, oh my gosh, when I saw it through an adult's mind and not a six year old's mind, where I could put sense to the fact that, oh, we're twins and they want to separate us, did I become healed of not wanting to be included into everything? And so now when people meet I'm like, Go ahead, I don't want to take my time doing that stuff. Because I've learned. But I had agreed with myself at that point, which caused me to be in a state of fear throughout all this time in my life. Um, And now what I do is in school, I'll tell I'll tell principals, you know, consider these twins (laughs) may not be good to separate them when they're in kindergarten. We might want to keep them together. But, you know, it gives me wisdom now when I look at that. So here's my whole point. If you want, we have a society, we have to realize first that we have an internal map that we've experienced in our life. We were raised by imperfect people. Sorry, Mom. (laughs) We were raised by imperfect people. (laughs) We were raised by imperfect mentors. We were raised by imperfect teachers. We were raised by imperfect people. People are people, (laughs) but they're powerful people, and their word has power, and when we agree with that, we are actually given that word even more power. So we need to be careful about what we say and what we hear. So I'm responsible for my internal map. I'm responsible for the things that come out of my mouth because of my fears and in my internal mouth. I can bring great um, joy and love with my words. I can bring great potential. I had one parent, I mean not one parent, I had one teacher in school. I thought I was dumb. I thought I was dumb in school. I really did. I was terrible. I really was. The whole thing was I didn't do my homework. It had nothing to do with my intellect. And I had one teacher that says, you know what? You need to join the swim team because I've noticed that smart people are really good swimmers. That word, I was like, what? You think I'm smart? Had life. And I was willing to do anything to join that team to prove that I was smart and he actually became a very good mentor. And I think about the power in those words as a teacher myself and what kind of life we can bring with those words. He probably was trying to put together a swim team and <laughs> saw that I had a lot of free time because I wasn't doing my homework. And he knew if I was in a sport, I'd probably get my homework done. But to me, that was life-giving, and I agreed with that. That was the first time anybody said I was smart. And then as I went into college, I realized, yeah, maybe I'm a little, little smart. But our, li- our words have power. They have creative power to either bring love or to bring fear. And I know my internal landscape. I know what I'm capable of on the negative side, and I know what I'm capable of on the positive side. But it's my responsibility to deliver that carefully. And I'm never going to be perfect at it. Never. I think even on the way to church, I said something about someone, you know? <laughs> and I'm preaching this today. So we're not perfect. But if we're aware of what our words can bring to people, then we're aware of our responsibility. On the flip side, if we're aware of what words can bring to us, then we're also responsible about how we receive words. So if someone says something to me like uh, negative, I can either choose to take it negatively and agree to it and make it part of my life to where I am restricted and not free, or I can let it go and just say, you know what, I don't understand that person's internal landscape. Why they would say that, I don't know. But I know that one thing the Father has said that he would give me, and that is love. And I know that I am loved, and I know there are people out there that love me, and I am going to purposely look for those then I am going to look for the negative. So like if I have a party now, I'm going to purposely focus on the people that actually showed and not in the back of my head be plagued by the person that didn't show. Because I don't know why they didn't show. Who knows? Right? And you know what? If it's because they didn't like me, okay. You know? They're missing out. Right? Great party. Yeah, that's right. It was the one person that got bopped in the head. What's the hell of that? Uh, But we also have to be aware, too, of what our society is restricting us with their words. What they're saying that is impossible may not be impossible. That rule may be brought out of ignorance and fear like it was for Daniel Kish. So we also have to be aware of that because we can be society changers. We can change our whole society. We can change our school systems. We can change our community. We can change this church. Because, one, we hold love as a priority because we know that it can overcast fear. It can obliterate fear. It's not like I have to rebuke the fear. I can't. I could rebuke fear everywhere. But if I bring love, that's what really gets rid of our fear. It's not rebuking some kind of spirit out there that bumped into me in the night. Right? I created that. And the only way to overcome that is to find something that I love that would cause me to dissipate the fear. Amen. Um, you look at little Josiah. I hate spiders, bugs, reptiles, whatever. That's a fearful thing for me to go and touch things. I go to those feeling tanks with the stingrays. I don't want to touch them. There's no way. What is that about? It's based in ignorance and fear. When Josiah, he has no ignorance and fear. And you know what? I tell you what, if I went up to him and I told him that reptiles were going to be the thing that kills him, he's not going to agree with me because he's pursuing his love. How many times do we allow people to do that to us, however, to break our potential, to break our freedom? And now that we know that, how many times can we say, now I'm going to break that. I'm going to break that agreement that I made with that person because it's not me. That's who you thought I was from your internal landscape, but that's not who I am. I am a powerful, created being made in the image of God that can create with my words and that can succeed. And, and my right is to be loved. That's the one right that we can guarantee and depend on regardless of what we've done, regardless of how low we feel, how desperate we are. We, can, we were made to be loved And and that is um, everything. So that's it.